Hello, and welcome to Wealth Vision 2020, where we discuss markets, economies, and money to help you understand what is happening, why it's happening, and most importantly, what to do about it. I'm Craig Pluta, along with Don Mathias. Today's episode is called Presidents and Stock Markets, where we talk about my recently published paper that dives into 40 years of economic data to find out what presidential party has the greatest economic success. Who is actually better for the stock market, Democrats or Republicans? Or is it possible that it just doesn't matter? Stay tuned as we discuss that and more. Today I'm going to be joined by Tyler Link, an analyst associate here at Alliance Wealth Management. Many of you already know Tyler um, from corresponding back and forth as we make different changes in your portfolio, so I'm sure that you recognize the name. Tyler assisted me in gathering the data for the recent paper titled The 2020 U.S. Presidential Election, Does Your Portfolio Care? Tyler, when you were pulling all of this information, did some of this surprise you? From the way people talk and the media makes it sound, yeah, it was surprising. You would expect one party to be favored among the other, but the data proves out every single time, any way you cut it, it does not matter. What political party is in power, it just it doesn't show any kind of consistency or correlation with the market. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that that people find surprising. So people who have dealt with me for the last 25 years have heard the comment again and again, if you view your portfolio through the prism of politics, you are going to make all sorts of mistakes. So the purpose of putting this paper together was really to kind of lay that out. We can talk about that all the time, and then people look at it and they say, yeah, but but what about this? But what about that? And so here, it becomes a little more difficult because when we pull all the data and we look at where the market recessions are versus where the bull market or the expansions are. It's really a little bit harder to refute that when you actually see it down on paper. And so hopefully this ends up being really helpful for people to understand that politics lives on an entirely separate plane from the market. Now, it is true that from time to time, those will intersect with each other. But by and large, they'll intersect, they'll come back and move back away from each other, and they live in an entirely different world. And that's what it is that we were trying to pull here. And I remember in pulling some of the data, um, you would look at some of that, and sometimes it would be a little bit surprised even, even to you as to how this all lays out and how consistent it is. And, and it surprises me then nobody really talks about this that much. Well, it's not exciting. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that there is no correlation or they can't make news about it. So I think that would explain why nobody really talks about it. But the data shows that it really doesn't correlate. The, the bull markets kind of do their own thing. That doesn't matter who's in power. I mean, we see it in the, the data that we pulled. There are different presidents for different parties in power and at the beginning of a bar bull market and then at the end of the bull market. It kind of changes hands without care of who's really in power. It doesn't have any kind of correlation, one party being in power and then the other one takes over and then all of a sudden the market takes off. It doesn't doesn't really happen. It's 
it's living on its own plane and they just kind of coincide. They're just in the world together, but not necessarily living for each other. So it just doesn't seem to have any kind of correlation. Yeah. And, and I think that you, you hit a good point there. And I think when, when we look at expansion periods, I think most people never really pay attention to the fact that there can be an expansion that lasted nine years. And you may find out that in the beginning of that expansion, it was one presidential party. In the end of the expansion, it was a different presidential party. But I can promise you this. In the middle of that expansion, when we got to that election, half of the American public, because this country is divided pretty much 50-50, half of the American public said, all this good bull market is going away the day after the election if this other guy wins. And the other half said, I'm surprised that this was even doing well because when my guy gets in and it's a different guy, now we're going to have a good economy. And, and in reality, you're right. It bridges across all of them. So that's where it gets, it gets interesting. Yeah, and it's funny because the market's a forward-looking instrument. So the November 3rd election won't change where the market goes in a day. The market wants to know what it's looking for. That's, that's the only uncertainty that the political environment can have an effect on, on a market. Since it's looking so far forward, it, a president changing one day to the next isn't going to change anything. So it, it would be different policies that are down the road that are already being priced in. The actual election won't sway something in a day or even a couple of weeks. I mean, it's going to be, it's looking so far in the future that it doesn't matter what happens on this day not November 3rd. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting because one of the things you point out is when you look at a president coming into power and you look at policies that a president may want to have, we have to distinguish two things right away. One is what it is that somebody is saying in the middle of an election cycle and what can actually happen. Here's where I think a lot of confusion comes in. We don't elect kings and queens in this country. What we elect is presidents. And I will tell you that every president does believe that they're going to be elected king. That, that's been common throughout history. There's an old story of John F. Kennedy that it said that when he uh, became president, there was a disaster, and I don't remember where this was, but there was a natural disaster in a different country, and he said he went down to what is now FEMA, but it, it didn't exist at that time. And he said, okay, so I need you to get out all of the aid and just get that out today to help them. And there was somebody running that department that looked at him and they said, well, Mr. President, we, we have to get this paperwork done first. <laughs> and he said, he said, well, I, I'm, no, I'm the president of the United States and I'm telling you, we'll do the paperwork, but just get it out first and we'll follow it up with paperwork. And it's reported that the um, guy who was taking care of the stuff said, with all due respect, Mr. President, this is my job. And if I send this out, I'm going to get fired and I need this job. I don't even know if you're going to be here in the next <laughs> four years. And it's reported that Kennedy turned to his aide and he looked at him and he said, get the guy his paperwork and stormed off. So it just goes to show, I mean, presidents do think that they're a bit more powerful than they actually are. And the system and the bureaucracy of the system is something that humbles them from the very first day that they take office. But besides that, 
it is also about the policies that they talk about that are always the, if I were king for a day, here's what I'm going to do. The problem is there's a whole lot of other people who have an opinion on that. And it's called the Congress and it's called the Senate. It's called checks and balances. Is what exactly. It's yeah. And so when you have that, that's a, another piece of the puzzle. Now, I know the biggest concern people have is, well, what about a presidential sweep, though, where the Democrats, say, would take the White House and the Senate and the Congress? And I would point out that when you start looking at sweeps, you do find out that it's not it's not as easy as you think to still get something done because you have parties, and especially let's talk about the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. The Republican Party, when they had control of Congress and Senate often, have such factions in among themselves that they still can't agree and pass certain things. The Democratic Party has the same issue. They have factions within their own party that go from the conservative Democrats to the very, very ultra-liberal Democrats. And so when it comes to a lot of policies, you just aren't really sure. No one's sweeping the Congress and the Senate, you know, by 90% to 10%. You know, they're all pretty close. And that means that cooperation has to happen on both sides. So I always caution people, don't get so hung up on what people are saying they're going to do in a campaign most of what they're saying they can do, they want to do in a campaign can't be done. And so we, we have to be careful about, you know, jumping to too many conclusions. And even in those scenarios, because we did pull the data of when the House, the Senate and the presidential office all were in the same party, no correlation with the market, nothing all of a sudden flicks a switch and the market goes on fire or completely tanks. That doesn't matter. Like you're saying, there is going to be gridlock no matter how many pieces of the checks and balances system they have in power, there's still going to be gridlock and there's still going to be a lot of debate. We are still a democracy. It is still the same system, even though there are such violent difference of, of opinion in it, but it still will be a democracy at the end of the day. So people get hung up when there could be a sweep. The market doesn't care. It's not, it's not going to turn completely off or turn completely on when one political party is in, in, in favor and we've seen that throughout history. In the, in the few times we have had a uh, total political sweep, the market doesn't reflect a, a complete difference. It's not following exactly to the, the beat of that drum. So the one thing that presidential policies and maybe some, some forecasted policies that they want to put in place that might have a better chance with a, a political sweep, that really doesn't affect anything until it hits corporate earnings. It's kind of that it needs to affect something on the bottom line for the market to really care about it. Just because a policy is, you know, uh, tossed around as, Hey, this could happen or this could raise taxes until you can kind of see that bearing out and how it's going to affect the company. It's not going to change what the market thinks because the market has to see the bottom line and kind of predict based on that. Right. And that's a good point because even when there is a policy change that's being talked about, and even if that policy change is going to affect something with certain corporations, corporations simply re-pivot on how they're going to do things. 
So it really does become much more of a cat and mouse where Congress may say, okay, we're going to change the laws on this or we're going to raise taxes on that. And then corporations say, okay, well, if we're paying more taxes on this, then we need to cut over here on that. And we need to be able to balance our balance sheets and do it in a way where we're going to come out ahead. And so sometimes you'll get a policy change and you'll find out that, yes, it's going to cost the corporation more money, but they do other things to negate that. And guess what? Their earnings per share come out in the same spot that they were going to. Or better. Or better. Yeah. It's yeah. all about finding the loopholes. That's what that's what they're best at. So, I mean, yeah, they're going to do it no matter what policies you put in place. That's what their job is. Yeah. So, I mean, I was talking to a client recently and we were talking and, and she was in Texas and, and we were talking about the presidential politics. We were talking about this paper. And I did have to kind of clarify, when we're talking about the markets, the markets are looking at the country as one unit. That is not to say that, that if you had certain policies, it may affect the state of Texas being an oil country or a, it's almost a country, being an, being an, <laughs> they want to be, they yeah. want to be their own. Yeah. Country. So Texas being an oil state is certainly going to, to be more sensitive to any kind of, you know, tax on, on oil or green energy, things like that. But that's not to say that that actually shows up in the stock market. There can be local concerns in Texas, but but what affects Texas negatively may be affecting somebody else in a positive way and those sort of you know negate each other. And I think that we just need to really kind of remember that that's how that often works. Could you even parse that down to a sector view? Like if yeah. one sector is affected, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the whole market. I mean, For sure. maybe the tech sector would have the biggest effect on the market right now just because of how big it's become, but... Yeah, so a good example of that would be when we when we look at healthcare. So healthcare has been one of those sectors that got battered around. So when healthcare was hot and heavy through the 90s and the 2000s and then when you you got to Obamacare, there was a lot of nervousness over how do companies that are healthcare companies actually survive? And so the answer is yeah, healthcare companies actually slowed up a bit. So, so managers, portfolios, they're they're not concerned about that. They're looking at that and saying, "Okay, so maybe under these circumstances with a certain president, we don't find pharmaceuticals to be, you know, advantageous or health organizations like United Healthcare to be advantageous." So maybe now we're looking more at at medical device makers, the Medtronics of the world, we think this still favors them. And so it's all about, in a portfolio, them just looking at what might have an effect and then just pivoting to something that it does not affect. And that's why I always go back to when we're talking about portfolios and markets, we have to be careful because when one person's bull is being gored, so to speak, somebody else is perfectly fine. We simply move over to those different items. Yeah, and one thing we should point out is that when we're referring to the market, we're referring to the S&P 500, which is an index of the broader market. Whereas if you compare it to something like a NASDAQ, where it's more tech heavy, it's kind of singular down on one sector. So when you talk about something like Obamacare affecting the healthcare system, 
it only affected one sector. So the remainder sectors in that index continue to charge on with no problem because the political policies that were put in place with Obamacare, yeah, it might have hurt the healthcare system, but the rest of the sectors did just fine. So it's the same thing if you saw any other kind of policies that maybe affected just the tech section, sector. The rest of the market's going to pick up that slack that's left by just that sector. That's kind of the the nice piece of being diversified across all sectors. Yeah, and, and it's important to, to also distinguish the fact that the managers are making all those decisions. So when people talk about the markets and the economy, that's one thing. But what we're wanting to concentrate on is the fact that we're talking about portfolios. And that means that in that Obamacare um, situation that we just mentioned, the managers are exiting that area and not part of the problem. And then they're moving over to what you just pointed out are many other sectors, and, and that makes all the difference. Now, so if we're seeing in the data that the president or political parties aren't the hub of the market, what is the hub of the market? What is causing the market to go up and down? So that's a good question. So the controlling force is not a president. We've, we've established that. The controlling force is the economic cycle. And when we talk about the economic cycle, I think too often we forget the fact that it ebbs and flows. So, you know, we sometimes talk about recessions as if there's a belief that we're going to be in a, a period where no recession will ever appear again. That if, if a recession appears, somehow we did something wrong to create a recession. And in fact, in politics, very often, that's that's what ends up happening. People talk about a recession, which may be perfectly natural, but they'll say, see, it was failed policies of the past. That is, that is a term that has been used forever. So here's how it works. We have an expansionary period that in our country has typically been somewhere between eight and 10 years long. Then, when it starts getting a little bit old, then corporate balance sheets start getting a little shoddy. Um, people take for granted things are really, really good. And little by little, things slip. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself in a little bit of trouble. And that's what the recessionary period is. And then once you're in the recession, what the U.S. companies especially are good at is re-engineering themselves, taking a hard look at themselves in the mirror, saying, listen, we got to clean up the balance sheet. We've got to fix this stuff. And by the way, we, you know, when things were good, 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 we just added staff where it was like, we got to get more stuff out the door. Okay, hire somebody. And then by the time you get to a recession, they start looking at everything in the business and they'll say, listen, do we need everybody that's here? Because, you know, Sally is doing some work that's kind of like Bob's work, and Tom is kind of pitching in. So shouldn't we give some other stuff to Sally that's more like her stuff? She can give up all of that. And by the way, I think we can eliminate a person. That's what happens all the time in a recession. And then companies become lean again. And then business starts up again. We start moving up into the expansion, and the expansion is generally another eight to 10 years long. And that's the natural cycle that we have. The problem is most people don't see that as just the natural cycle. They think something's wrong when we hit that recessionary period. So we're gonna always go through those. 
And it seems people always highlight the negative more often, which is kind of ironic when you're looking at the business cycle, the economic cycle, you're going to be in the expansion phase much, much longer than you're going to be in the contraction and the recession phase. I mean, the, the contraction, and the recession phase is usually about one to one and a half years. I mean, that's probably even pretty, pretty long for a, a recessionary period. And then you're in the expansion phase for almost eight to 10 years. I'm going to take that every single time. Those odds are great. Go, you should fly to Vegas right now with those odds. Exactly. And, and that's the thing that I think everybody always misses. And, and that's, that's partially, you know, you do have, you know, the media, you know, the CNBCs of the world, they do broadcast the next end of the world on a daily basis. So you're right. When things are good, you can see the hyperbole on a daily basis. So if the market is up, you know, a thousand points, you will hear somebody say, it was a good day in the market. It's up a thousand points. If the market is down a thousand points, it's crashing. So, I mean, the hyperbole is just, is just, you know, off the charts in one direction and it's always the, the dramatic direction. So you're right. And, and I think the point that you made is the point that recessionary periods are a year or a little more. Expansion periods are nearly a decade and you're right. That is the thing that everybody should focus on. It, it's hard to keep focused on that, though, when people are shouting at you all the time about, you know, I'm going to lose all my money. And this is where, you know, I've made this comment many times, and, and I still think that people resist this comment. The market is on a permanent uptrend, punctuated by brief periods of negative returns. Don't fight that. That is what it is, and that's how it works. And it works that way by necessity because even when a company finds that they're not making as much money, they raise their price and restore their profit or give them a greater profit. And so it's by necessity that it works that way. And so we shouldn't fight that. That's a good thing. We should actually put our arms around it and embrace it because it is what creates wealth. And it's really important because – it's you're probably only going to see <clears throat> four or five bull markets in your lifetime. The first one, you're probably going to be too young to really capitalize on because you won't have any assets. And then those middle ones are really important. You're in your asset accumulation phase. You can't afford to miss it. So if you're sitting on the sidelines based on who the president is, you're going to miss what could be a huge piece of what your retirement funding would be. Like people can't take that kind of risk, especially when nine times out of 10, the market's going up rather than down. That's it's, a huge risk at stake when you when you decide that you need to be out of the market based on something that the market really doesn't care about. So you can't you can't afford to miss these bull markets when they do come around because you only get four or five, and that would be your generational generational wealth that you're giving to your your kids and grandkids. And if you decide to miss those, it really hampers what you're able to pass down to the next generation. Yeah, and the power of of compounding is really dramatic. And I think that your point about that middle years where people are putting money away and it's compounding and that is what's creating their future lifestyle is dead on. What's even more interesting is the last bull market. So when you take those bull markets and you say, we're gonna have somebody in their fifth and final bull market, the final bull market is insane. And the reason is because a, a compounding 
on a very large sum of money is a lot of dollar growth. And I think people tend to forget that. I mean, you know, you can just look at it on a regular basis. If you had $1,000 and the market went down or up 10%, you know, now, now you've got $1,100. And it's like, that's nice. But if you have a million dollars or $2 million and it goes up the same 10%, now you're adding $100,000. And $2 million, you're adding $200,000. Oh, that's having a bigger impact on everything. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I think that that often there's this misimpression that if somebody is in retirement, that they need to dial everything down to the point where they're just making a little bit of money. They don't need it to grow. So why take the risk? It's like, okay, that, that's fine. You have to be prudent, no doubt about that. But the fact of the matter is that last compounding period, that fifth one, that is the one that make dreams happen that people didn't even imagine. They weren't even in their dreams. And that is really important. And I think that people tend to forget about that. I mean, even Albert Einstein, I think, is the one who made the comment that, that the compound interest is like the fifth wonder of the world. That, that he said, I, I've scratched my head, looked at that and said, this, this is just amazing. <laughs> and people talk about it like they understand it, like when someone can refer to compounding as exponential growth. But it always seems that people don't really understand that. I mean, they could look at the graph where that line just goes steeper and steeper up. I mean, it's double, triple black diamond. I don't even know if they have triple black diamonds, but it, it gets more and more severe the, the further up you go. And people can look at that, but they don't really comprehend it, how to apply it to their savings, their retirement, their, their wealth, when it comes to keeping it invested, letting the market do its thing and letting things grow over time. Because like you're saying, that that allows people to do things that they never would have imagined they would be able to do as long as they stick with the plan and not pull the plug on something while it's still trying to grow. If you cut something's legs off while it's still on the way up, it's really going to hamper you in the long run. I mean, it would just go, instead of keeping that steep incline up, you're all of a sudden hitting a flat spot and it just delays everything and that negates your chance to compound it as well. Now, when pulling all of this data together, we kind of struggled with where's the starting point? I mean, American history goes back to 1776, so you can't really start there. I mean, the market didn't really start there, but we decided that mm, around 1980 would be a good starting point. It's about 40 years, just under 40 years, if you're not including all of 2020. And it's about what a typical working career would be like. So we thought that was a good kind of measurement of the kind of difference you can see in a normal working career if you just took a look at how the market did, if you were about, uh, investing in one party versus another, or if you stayed invested through the through the entire working working period. Yeah, 1980 is interesting because everybody remembers that as as Ronald Reagan, and so we're gonna so we looked at the Reagan uh, presidency, and then we had um, George Bush. Senior, so H.W. Bush, right after Reagan, who is uh, Reagan's vice president. And then from um, H.W. Bush, it goes to the Clinton administration, then to the G.W. Bush administration, and then the Obama administration, and then Trump. So, yeah, I, th I think we're really hitting a lot of administrations. And, and that was key in this, to make sure that it's not cherry-picked data. 
because there's nothing worse than that where where you you have a thesis on something and it's cherry picked and you're looking at a 10 year period that was a special 10 year period. So across the 40 years, you really have seen pretty much everything. And you've seen a number of recessionary periods, um, including the tech wreck, you know, which was the year 2000. So one of the things that's interesting about that 40 years is when you go from 1980, we have things called a secular bull market. And a secular bull market is generally approximately 20 years long. So if you go 1980, you would say a secular bull market may last from 1980 all the way to 2000. Then if you go through the major recession, which we had in 2008, right after that, it looks like you are starting a new secular bull market. So if you do that, that means we're only 12 years into this 20-year bull market. And so it's interesting. In 1980, we had a 10-year run, roughly, and, and we got to 1990. 1990, we had a minor recession. After that, we had the run-up from 1990 all the way to 2000. So that went through uh, George Bush Sr., and then it went through Clinton. Then we had the tech wreck. Then after the tech wreck, we had very little progress because shortly after the tech wreck, what did we have? We had 911. That caused another recessionary period. So we really had, you know, a very weak period right in there, which is often what'll happen in between two secular bull markets. And now we've had a 12-year run, roughly. Um, from all the way from 2009 to 2020 or the be end of 2019. And now we will start moving to a new bull market. And that new bull market will be the second half of the secular bull market. Now, maybe for some people that may be confused on the difference between a secular bull market and a normal bull market or an expansionary period, could you highlight some of the differences of those just to kind of explain because we're kind of throwing that a bull market might be 10 years, but a secular bull market could be 20 years. Expansionary periods, usually 8 to 10. So kind of a number of different numbers. Can you just highlight the differences on those? Sure. So a secular bull market is a long period of time where the country goes through an expansion and has generally either a slow period in the middle of it or a break where it's a minor recession. So for instance, when we look at recessions, we always talk about major recessions and minor recessions. 1980 to 1989 was a major expansion, and then we had a minor recession. What do I mean by minor? The 1990 recession was so minor that most people don't know that we had a recession in 1990, okay? And so then it picks right back up and it keeps moving on. So it's an interruption in a very long bull market. And so those small pieces we're, we're referring to as a bull market because the interruption was a bear market. So it goes bull market, tiny bear market, another bull market. Those two bull markets together are a long 20-year run-up that the market has. And it's not by accident that this happens. So it really is correlated with the fact that very special things are happening inside of an economy. So for instance, if you look at 1980, what would have happened in 1980 
that started a secular bull market? The answer is technology. Microsoft was first invented, I believe it was 1978, and the technology revolution took off. That's not something that's short-lived. That is a long-running trend that takes you far, far out. Then when you have a major recession, something like 2008, where you had a major recession, in fact, now we've given that the moniker, it's the Great Recession. After you work out of that, and by the way, those are longer, so, so they're not you know half of a year. They generally are a longer period of time and a lot more pain. Once you move out of that, you have a very robust expansionary period. And so that's what we're looking at here. So even with this recession that we have, which was a man-made recession, we have to, we have to identify that. Even with this recession, I would argue we are still in a long secular bull market. It just had this little interruption, and this interruption actually might not have happened at all had it not been for the coronavirus. So when you look at we had the longest expansion in history going, there wasn't any reason why it couldn't have kept going. Yeah, nothing in the in the market as far as corporate earnings or uh, any kind of policies coming down the road kind of really indicated that, especially not what political party was in was in power. That wasn't going to change the fact that we were probably going to go until 2028, 2029 in a, in a new uh, secular bull market. All right, say you can't be convinced. Say it doesn't matter what you guys say, what the data says. I still want to invest in my own political party because I believe in them. They're, they're the smarter of the two parties. Everybody else is stupid. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I can't be swayed. So we did. It was, so the best way to capitalize on that then would be to invest only when your political party is in the White House. Not difficult to pull. So we put those numbers together and it is startling to see the difference. Both political parties kind of start off in the same pathway. They're pretty, they're pretty close. One pulls ahead, one catches up. One pulls ahead, one catches up, and they kind of end a little bit separate, but not really true meaningful difference between the two. Now, if you stayed invested in the market the entire time, regardless of what party is in the, in the White House, the results are staggering, not even close. It's a complete runaway victory. It's as if you had two greyhounds that were running around a track and all of a sudden Secretariat took the lead. It's not, it's, it's not even a comparison. They shouldn't even be on the same chart. Nearly 6.6 times greater return you would see over that 40-year period starting back in 1980. Six times. That's the difference between retirement, generational wealth, and not being in, having enough to fund your retirement. Yeah. In, on the graph here, what we looked at was um, investing $100,000 based on the political party returns. And just to, to reiterate and put it into dollarized terms, um, in some cases here, the $100,000 would have grown to um, roughly, um, in one case, a little bit under a million dollars, and in another case, a little over a million dollars, um, and that was over that 40-year period. But to your point, to dollarize it by looking at investing throughout all parties, the number grew to more than $9 million. So, yeah. A million here, a million there. Pretty soon we're talking about real money. So it is amazing what a difference it makes. And, and 
it's interesting because we were talking the other day about innovation and and you had made a comment that i thought was was dead on accurate for that yeah i mean innovation in a capitalist society it's not going to wait it's not going to say hey i can't fund this startup because my president isn't the one that i want right now you're not going to stop your your entrepreneurial venture because the political party in power isn't the one that you voted for none of that stops technology companies aren't going to say hey R&D, put your projects on a hold. We don't have the kind of tax incentives we want. Things are always going to keep pushing, and the market's always going to keep pushing forward. It doesn't matter what political party is in power. Yeah, and I think that that's an important part of this because we tend to think that everything stays static just because it's easier to think through that way. But in reality, what we know is in the next 4, 8, and 12 years, products businesses are all going to be created that some of which are a, a variation of something that already exists now. And some of them are going to be brand new and things that nobody ever thought of. And so in, in portfolios and in markets, what it is that you're taking advantage of by being in the markets and prospering with them is that you're part of all of that as it's happening and not just you know, boycotting certain areas. So I, I think that that was a really good point just because of the fact that we are about probably the most innovative society on the planet and portfolios that we're working with with clients are a reflection of that innovation. And that's, that's what partially makes markets go up. The only difficulty with the investing based on a political party that we're still seeing is that people are passionate about the party they pull for, and it's difficult to untie that emotional relationship from your investments. So talk a little bit about how we can kind of help with that and we can untie those two to make sure that you're able to stay in the markets, even though every ounce of your being wants you to pull out. Yeah. And, and, and that's been a challenge, you know, across decades. And, and it's a constant struggle to be able to have people separate those two. We separated pretty easily just because, you know, being in this industry, you know, this amount of time, we just know that there's not that correlation. But I think sometimes, you know, just a simple example generally helps somebody. So, you know, if, if President A or President B gets into office, is it really going to change the amount of iPhones that Apple sells? Probably because, not. No. <laughs> no, because because Apple stock is dependent on largely on how many iPhones they sell because that's their category killer. And so if it's not going to change that, then their earnings aren't going to change. And if their earnings don't change, then the results of their stock should stay the same because we're willing to pay a certain multiple of their profits to own the company. And so we really need to realize that that's how that all works. And so I've always used that example with clients. They'll, they'll recognize that example because it's, it's a way to kind of break a person free of that to be able to say, you know, a Democrat gets in office, a Republican gets in office. I don't care. An independent gets in office. Oh my God, Apple stock's going to go down. Wait, hold on. 
I'm not sure I'm understanding any of this. And I think if we look at it that way and use that to kind of break us free from it, because everyone I've ever said that to is like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And, and that's how we have to think of things. And so, you know, yeah, are there winners and losers um, over time? Sure. You know, you know, if you're in the coal industry, certainly that is a tough industry. But, but that's probably then not where you want to be anyway. So it's not like that's suddenly going to become a great industry. And it's easy to sit here and say that when there's nothing at stake. I mean, when we do explain that to clients, they kind of look at us and they say, Oh, yeah, that that makes sense. I can buy that. But when they see their portfolio going down and they want to pull out of the market, like we saw earlier this year, how how do we pull people away from that ledge and kind of detach that that emotional uh, decision? I mean, that's that's kind of where our value comes in. It's where we're able to detach that and use make a logical, prudent investment decision rather than let than let emotion drive a a a poor investment decision that could could cost somebody their their well-being in their future. Yeah, and that all that all goes back to the reason why it's so important. You go back to 2002, Dr. Daniel Kahneman gets the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2002. The interesting thing is, the guy's a psychologist. And so it was all about behavioral finance. And so he brought up what you're saying. He said Basically, behavioral finance says, why do people do what they do when they know full well it's probably the wrong thing to do? And I'll, I'll tell you, there was a time um, where I was giving a talk on that Nobel Prize, and um, and the people um, that I have that are from Kimberly Clark may remember this. So it was in a big auditorium, and we talked about different experiments um, that Dr. Daniel Kahneman did about emotions and logic. And and every time that I would repeat one of the experiments and how it turned out, I would see somebody in the audience head just kind of look down at the desk, like like their hand then went on their forehead, like, oh my God, he's talking about me. And and so people could see the error after the error was pointed out. And I did have some people that came up to me at the end of that, and they were like, Oh my God, I thought you were talking about me. And I'm like, it, don't, don't worry, because you're just part of a large group of people. So it is important, and, and your question is an important one. And the answer is, we have to always just kind of talk about this all the time, about where did the mistakes get made? How do we avoid those mistakes? But first and foremost, the most important thing people need to know is that markets have pauses. That's not, it's not because it's broken. It's because that's how it works. And that's okay. And so the more we can embrace the fact that the market goes up, 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 and then may come back a little, and then go up, 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 the more they can embrace that, the more they can realize that when we have some of these pauses, it actually is not the end of the world. Well, as usual, we covered a lot of ground today from recessions to bull markets and, and the influence or even the lack of influence, I guess, that presidents have over the long-term trends of the market. So hopefully you gained some insights from our discussion here in what can only be described as a vitriolic election cycle. We look forward to you joining us next time. 
If you'd like a full copy of the paper, The 2020 U.S. Presidential Election, Does Your Portfolio Care? Just email me at craig.pluta at raymondjames.com. Hey, thanks for joining us for today's episode, Presidents and Stock Markets. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know. And if there are other subjects you'd like to hear about, let us know that as well. Wealth Vision 2020 is a production of Alliance Wealth Management Milwaukee, an independent registered investment advisor. Visit us at awmmil.com. The information contained in this podcast does not purport to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but we do not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any opinions expressed are as of this date, subject to change, and are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of Raymond James. Past performance does not guarantee future results. No statement within this podcast should be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell a security or to provide investment advice. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional. There is no assurance that any of the trends mentioned will continue or that any of the forecasts mentioned will occur. All investing involves risk, including the possible loss of capital. The S&P 500 is an unmanaged index of 500 widely held stocks. It is not possible to invest directly in an index.